This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. You know, every once in a great while in this program, we just kind of turn the mic on and just have at it. Just have kind of a rant for about a half hour. I think today's one of those days. So, dear listener, buckle your seatbelt. Now, in the very near future, yours truly is planning to take part in discussion with some um, investigative journalist types, one of our favorite sorts of people. The subject is going to be a couple of recent documentaries about JFK and his assassination. There are two documentaries out, which we recommend to you. The first is JFK Revisited, Through the Looking Glass. And the second is titled JFK Unsolved. You can find them both uh, by noodling around on the web and encourage you to do so. Now, several weeks back, I I sat down and and penned a response to um, alleged CIA expert Tim Weiner's piece that appeared in Rolling Stone last month. Weiner was angrily theorizing on JFK Revisited, which is based on Oliver Stone's previous work. Weiner was quite scornful of the notion that's put forth in the film that the CIA seems to have some involvement in the matter. Now, it so happens that that documentary was written by an old pal of this program, James Eugenio. We very much look forward to having Jim come on himself to rebut Tim Weiner. He has done so on his website, kennedysandking.com, with great vigor, and we think he should do so here as well. But uh, to pave the way for that, I wanted to get out some of my thoughts on a lot of this. Let us start with the fact that, quote, conspiracy theory, unquote, as we've talked about in this program in the past, is a great label to slap on somebody you want to disparage. It's a quick way to place a tinfoil hat upon the head of your target. And Mr. Weiner does exactly this in Rolling Stone. After acknowledging Oliver Stone's brilliant movie making in his first sentence, Weiner says in sentence two, these days he's a tinfoil-hatted fabricator. Weiner alleges that his crack sleuthing has brought forth first the Jim Garrison and later Oliver Stone got fed bogus data on the assassination from the Soviets. That's right, folks. It's a commie plot. Now, we had John Dean on this program many years ago when at that time I made passing mention of a conspiracy theory on Watergate. Dean halted me to say, I only believe in the conspiracies that are real, which we think is a pretty sound policy that we try to follow. Now, in the case of JFK, there are myriad theories about what happened. They are fostered by the fact that the official explanation is so improbable. And there is undeniable evidence that every effort was made to steer the original investigation away from leads that would not validate the Warren Report's conclusions, which, which frankly, were established before any investigating was done. Even supporters of the report are forced to admit that important things were suppressed. And continued suppression of such information is a central complaint in JFK Revisited, and we think it is a justified complaint. Years back, we also interviewed Darren Miller about his book, Web of Conspiracy, a guide to conspiracy theory sites on the web. Darren Miller admitted that some of what's labeled conspiracy theories are legitimate things to explore. Among them, drumroll, the assassination of JFK, and so did TWA Flight 800, which for our money is the gold standard for how a cover story can pass muster if you throw enough effort at it. Let's look at it. 
TWA 800 was a U.S. military mistake, an accidental shoot-down. The public got told that Boeing 747 aircraft, well, they just may sometimes blow up spontaneously. Now, if and when real aircraft design flaws are found, then the world fleet of all such jets are grounded. This happened recently with the 737 MAX. They then make corrections. This has happened many times over the years, but when you know it, it never happened with the 747. Hundreds of them remain in service today. No retrofitting was ever done. So what's the deal? The deal is TWA and Boeing and the FAA and the FBI knew it wasn't true. Ask any commercial pilot about this. They'll tell you it's absurd. It's preposterous. Yet James Kallstrom of the FBI made it stick, showing it can be done with enough effort even if your evidence is a joke. So keep in mind, some conspiracies are real. Thank you, John Dean. Now, there are nuts running amok when it comes to theorizing about Dallas. I've, I've met many, I have to tell you. It's just that neither Oliver Stone nor James DiEugenio are among them. Tim Weiner has used his position as an insider with valued sources at the CIA to weigh in on controversies in the past. I think we should compare his current scorn over JFK Revisited to a 1997 attack he made in the New York Times on the issue of drug running amid the Iran-Contra scandal. Gary Webb had broken a story on how the funding of the Contras involved drug trafficking. Wiener scoffed then, too. His piece in the New York Times was titled, CIA has found no link between itself and the crack trade. Tim was evidently assured by his anonymous sources that they'd looked into it and found they were not guilty. Wiener's reportage and others like it earned a rather hilarious send-up in Tom Tomorrow's This Modern World wherein O.J. Simpson announces to police he's investigated the matter and concluded he's completely innocent. (laughs) To which the cops respond, well, okay then, guess we better be running along. In Gary Webb's case, it was worse than denials and Wiener-esque attacks. The L.A. Times, the New York Times, and the Washington Post all piled on. They put entire teams on the case with the goal of saying that his stories were, quote, flawed, unquote. But what do you know? Many years later, the CIA admitted that despite assurances by all those journalists who had backed their story that they were not the real killers, that Gary Webb had been correct. I'll be darned. By then, the subject matter was long off the front pages, and Webb, oh, well, he'd killed himself. He was despondent over the relentless attacks he'd faced, coupled with the refusal of his paper to publish his follow-up stories. Again, The anti-web efforts were interested in poking holes that might be found in his journalism, and only that. Fact-checking was not what they were tasked with, only attacking. An LA Times reporter later confirmed that he'd been on a Get Gary Webb squad. They were not intending to follow up on Webb's work. And I must at this point remind listeners of the classic 1976 article by Carl Bernstein, The CIA and the Media. It pointed out how media sources kind to the agency had been stuck in place for exactly that purpose, producing favorable spin. If you dig into this even a little, and we think you should, you'll discover this is not the realm of the tinfoil hat. And we think you'll never look at the so-called experts trotted out for the cable networks in quite the same way you once did. Perhaps Tim Weiner's attack in 1997 had nothing to do with organized pro-CIA journalism, that had been stirred up to take down Webb. That's possible. Let's classify it under the category of coincidence theories. Wiener was pro-CIA by coincidence. 
Now, Wiener claimed in Rolling Stone that Jim Garrison and ultimately Oliver Stone were misled by Soviet disinformatia, passed to the West via an Italian communist newspaper. Before weighing in on that, I want to cite another PR battleground from the 20th century. As some of you will recall, back in the 1970s, scientific studies confirming the dangerousness of tobacco smoke were published, but were invariably linked to a study that seemed to balance off such findings. Rather favorable studies on cigarette smoking got funded by the companies that benefited from such reports. Yet, year after year, media outlets reported the conflicting stories as if they somehow balanced. Big Tobacco spent vast sums pushing the idea that, well, more study was needed. In recent decades, Big Oil has followed this same strategy. It, too, has much to lose from an objective look at reality. It, too, has set out to fashion friendlier realities for public consumption. But the petrochemical folks have a tool that Big Tobacco lacked. It was tough for the makers of Marlboros to claim that conspiracy theorists were plotting against them. Few were likely to believe that the American Cancer Society was part of a cabal. And by the 60s, it was pretty clear to Americans that Uncle Moe's chain-smoking his emphysema and his having to tote an oxygen tank to the market were in fact linked. Big Oil and its allies and media outlets have had time to build up an alternative reality this time around. The environmental extremist was invented to portray activists as conspirators. This was not an easy sell. Americans have a marked preference for clean air and clean water, but gas bags like Rush Limbaugh pushed the idea of eco-plotters relentlessly, and it took root. Now, an Exxon may say to us, look, we live on the same planet you do. But they will then add, let's not lose our heads and enact restrictions that will crash our economy. Anyway, global warming's in doubt, right? Well, so they said in the 1980s and ever since. The 5% of scientists in their camp are portrayed as balancing the 95% who are not. They say, well, this justifies moving cautiously. Keep in mind, as reported on this program and elsewhere, that it was recently revealed that Exxon studied CO2 emissions back in the 1980s to produce forecasts as accurate as they are hair-raising. Their data was quite in sync with that of atmospheric scientists then and since who saw trouble. Despite this foray into objective reality, Exxon decided the best thing to do about it back then was nothing. And actually, it's worse than that. The existential threat to the oil industry was dealt with forcefully. Those coming to similar conclusions on climate change were disparaged. Climate change was really about dirty money, they said. Just imagine the dollars involved in churning out studies blaming fossil fuels for higher temperatures. These guys are frauds trying to get rich by churning out lies on greenhouse gases. At least that was the message for the ditto heads. But if you increase CO2 levels from 285 to 415 parts per million in two centuries, you should expect trouble. The trouble that Exxon predicted. And last summer, Canada broke its all-time high temperature by a jaw-dropping 10 degrees. Exxon might be asked to pull out their calculations from 40 years ago. They knew this was coming, yet they decided hiding the data was their best option. And hiding of data... Well, that's kind of our theme today, really. Those with something to hide can and will put forth positions that serve their interests, even if they're criminal. Such was the case with the idea that people can smoke and not suffer. Such is the case with global warming, which is now unfolding as envisioned in the 1980s, despite denials that it's going on. And ladies and gentlemen, such is the case with those who say the Warren Report has stood the test of time. 
Now, slightly to his credit, Tim Wiener evidently is not quite one of them. He admits in his piece in Rolling Stone that after studying the JFK case, he, quote, can't tell you there wasn't a conspiracy, unquote. But then he adds, quote, maybe it was the Russians, could have been the Cubans, might have been the mafia, unquote. The Russians. Really. Gotta admit, figuring the Russians as possible active plotters is quite a supplement to his proposal earlier in the piece that Oliver Stone was a dupe of KGB disinformatia. Wiener says he's an authority on the CIA. He wrote a book titled Legacy of Ashes about the agency, and I admit I never read it. I asked a friend who had what his takeaway was. He said, well, the CIA is incompetent and should be disbanded, which is like, wow, defund the CIA. Wouldn't hold my breath for that one. But from other online reviewers, I concluded that my friend came away with conclusions that were shared by many that read the book. The company, quote unquote, is a bunch of boobs. They need their wings clipped out of sheer money-wasting incompetence. But given some familiarity with the agency's antics in the past, I, I really couldn't see them as hapless. People in Iran, Guatemala, and Congo will, I'm sure, not agree that our James Bonds are incapable. But then, you know, hey, didn't the clowns at CIA assure us that Saddam Hussein had WMDs? Shades of Tim Wiener. Fire the dopes. But, well, just a sec. It was clear after 9-11, but before the war in Iraq, that CIA analysts had leaked data contrary to what their bosses were saying to the press. Well, at least they would the ones that would publish it. These were not the friendly assets, you know, of Carl Bernstein. They were papers like Knight Ritter and McClatchy that thought the truth was of paramount importance. A smattering of alternative media voices spoke up, but seldom did the mainstream press in the ramp-up to the Iraq War. We would say that it was obvious to those paying attention that politicians were setting an agenda that had nothing to do with realities on the ground, WMDs, or otherwise. It was clear to us here at Radio Parallax. Then again, we were trying to pay attention. We called out Judith Miller in the New York Times for their carrying water for Don Rumsfeld. We questioned the WMDs. We scoffed at Colin Powell's load of BS at the UN. But sadly, few joined in our skepticism. Intelligence failures are really, they're a fine cover your ass. But this was not the why behind the alleged WMDs. No, that was lies. This is not due to incompetence of the CIA. Our Central Intelligence Agency is not an entity we should think of as incapable. They may be ultra-competent, regardless of who's leading them politically. Stories of how their coups got pulled off in Guatemala and Iran make some pretty stirring reading. And I suggest you, you take a look at that sometime, dear listener. But uh, Tim Weiner has it. They cannot pull off the sorts of things that Oliver Stone envisions. Personally, I think they may wish to seem incapable if it serves their purposes. And I say, don't be fooled. Look at Iran in 1954. The agency faked demonstrations that linked the prime minister to the Communist Party. A linkage that I think surprised both sides. CIA plotters got the Shah back on the throne despite some long odds, and it was really, it was quite the rabbit out of the hat move. Yet some would say that's a very long way from a murderous coup d'etat in America, is it not? Well, given a track record of successes elsewhere, I would advise against the perspective of incompetence, especially since in some cases heads of state were removed with bullets. Assassination plots were acknowledged in the early 1970s when the Rockefeller panel and church committee probed them. A new policy got adopted in the Ford administration saying they wouldn't do those anymore, not to admit that they'd ever done them at all. They were innocent, they said, 
And furthermore, they pledged never to do it again. Fifty years ago, few Americans could believe that rogue elements in our government could have done something as evil as Dallas, but fewer find it impossible now. When criticism of the Warren Report arose circa 1965, the focus was on whether someone else besides Oswald had been involved. It did not take long, however, before rumblings came to the surface that something much bigger might be in play. Jim Garrison got criticized for alluding to what seemed to be an impossibly large plot. Who does he say did it, smirked his critics at the time. Right-wingers, anti-Castro-Cubans, the military, the CIA. Will Jim Garrison please make up his mind? It really did seem confusing back in 1967, but it was becoming clear that the FBI and CIA had steered the investigation in their preferred directions. They also hid data that pointed away from the lone nut scenario. Researchers had discovered in the Warren's own volumes that deceptions and omissions abounded. Still, little discussion took place in the U.S. about a possible deep plot, even with Garrison's agitations. So back to Russia. The Soviets were the 800-pound gorilla in the room back in 1963. The Soviet press alleged that JFK had fallen victim to a plot by rightist elements of the U.S. government. And that was alluded to in the memo by Acting Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach days after the assassination that directly led to the formation of the Warren Commission. Was the idea of a right-wing plot Soviet disinformatia? Well, a trail that pointed from Oswald back to the USSR had been put in place months before the assassination. The assassin was portrayed as a Marxist misfit, an ex-Soviet defector with a Russian wife, for crying out loud. It was understandable that the Ruskies would be alarmed at the prospect of being blamed for killing JFK and even more alarmed at the prospect of World War III as a consequence. Nicholas Katzenbach and J. Edgar Hoover both thought a blue ribbon panel should be put together to convince the public that Oswald was the real assassin and that he would have been convicted if he lived and that he had no co-conspirators. The most worrisome of those were Soviet co-conspirators. Keep in mind we're talking 1963 here, not Garrison's allegedly being duped come 1966. The Russians said it wasn't us. They said it was a coup from within the U.S. government, and they had reason to say this. It should be noted that the Kennedy family quietly let the Russians know that they shared those beliefs. But let us return to the concept of conspiracy theorist. That, too, has roots in intelligence agency PR only is not from the Russians. A U.S. document circulated in 1967 set the tone for future use of this term. Now, garrisons and the headlines, along with the idea that elements of the U.S. government were involved, doubts were piling up. Mainstream U.S. media outlets like Life, CBS News, and the Saturday Evening Post finally began to call for another look at the case. And in foreign nations, there was definitely a parallel groundswell. The CIA decided that counteraction was needed. So, a memo got circulated to CIA stations around the world outlining how these doubts must be countered. If the foreign press sought details, they were to be reassured the Warren Commission had been thorough. The memo advised pointing out that it was extraordinarily unlikely that any plot could have escaped the notice of these investigators. The memo admitted that despite such comprehensive efforts, it was unavoidable that some, quote, conspiracy theorists, unquote, could never be satisfied. And at this, the tinfoil hats were being manufactured and stored for future use. And uh, forgive me for yet another detour at this moment, 
The question arises of whether the Russians manipulate public opinion. And, and that's, that's kind of fresh from the headlines of today. And the answer is yes, it did and it does. Hello. Efforts to manipulate PR by modern governments got a boost in the 1920s when Edward Bernays, considered the father of PR, pioneered propaganda. Bernays was a nephew of Sigmund Freud, and he would prove influential to how the Nazis brainwashed the German public. And wouldn't you know it, tobacco companies in the U.S. hired Bernays to work his magic to influence our citizenry, and they were amply rewarded for doing so. The Soviets wanted to spread their version of current events to the world and devoted many resources to doing so, but they were not, they were not too clever about it. Their lies were often so clumsy and so flagrant that the world noticed and sometimes laughed. In the aftermath of the JFK assassination, the Soviets had a giant problem. They knew they were bound to be suspected. Two months before Dallas, Lee Oswald went to Mexico City, where he allegedly met with a KGB agent at the Russian embassy. This contact was the man in charge of dirty tricks, including murders, in the Western Hemisphere, or so it was claimed by the CIA. Oswald also, supposedly, visited the Cuban embassy to get a visa. He lied, said he already had one from, from the Russians, which he didn't. It caused a big row, and he got thrown out. These visits were a strange, confused mess. They involved provocations that certainly looked suspicious when Oswald turned up later as an accused presidential assassin. Again, the man had a history of defecting to the USSR and agitating in New Orleans in, in a pro-Castro cause once he got back to the States. The CIA had monitored this and the Mexican embassy visits, but what they would later say about them is unsatisfactory and remains so to this day. The Russians in 1963 certainly looked like possible co-conspirators and a PR battle was going to follow. And speaking of PR, it's worth mentioning that the very first accusation of conspiracy in the assassination of JFK came from a Miami pro-Castro group. It linked Oswald to Castro in a newspaper they put out the day after Dallas. The group expressing this idea was funded by, well, are you ready for this? The CIA. Calling Tim Weiner, Earl Warren, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, balked at the prospect of the head of the third branch of government joining a group organized by the first branch of government. Lyndon Johnson secured Warren's cooperation by saying that if rumors of a Soviet-based conspiracy were not put to bed, World War III could result. At that point, Warren signed on and was given a mandate to produce a report that would ignore conspirators, in particular Russian or Cuban conspirators. And that mission was accomplished, along with burying all other evidence that pointed away from Lee Oswald being a lone nut actor. So who is producing disinformation now? So yeah, Russian denials of involvement in JFK's murder came from a propaganda apparatus that had told lies over the decades. In the case of the assassination, however, the denials ring true based on the evidence we now have. And if the truth be told, so do their assertions that elements of the U.S. government were involved. Okay, back to 1963. New Orleans DA Jim Garrison announces to a stunned world he's uncovered evidence of a plot to kill JFK. He wasn't ready to do that, but media leaks prompted him to jump the gun. Garrison knows who some of the participants were, he says. He's going to arrest them, he says, and try them, he says. It's incendiary news, and the world press is galvanized into action. 
And as mentioned, a certain memo got circulated to try and put that fire out. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Garrison overplays his hand. Then again, he'd not been ready to go public. We can say in retrospect, there's no doubt that the DA had stumbled onto avenues that promised to tell a different story than the one offered by the Warren Commission. Oswald, noted Garrison, kept pretty strange company for a supposed pro-Cuban Marxist who'd once gone on a radio program to defend his leftist sympathies. While in the Crescent City, the young man had posed as a Castro sympathizer, yet he hung out with a right-wing private eye who used to be an FBI agent, and also a pilot who was so right-wing he once had to be removed from the stage when he spoke to a veterans group and advocated killing JFK. Oh, uh, did I mention that both these guys had solid CIA contacts? Could be a coincidence. Now, it turns out Garrison had arrested that pilot, David Ferry, days after the assassination. He'd gotten word that Ferry had gone to Dallas under mysterious circumstances that very weekend. After his arrest, the FBI questioned Ferry, but turned him loose. Garrison became convinced there was more to the story of David Ferry and a private eye Guy Bannister just a few years later. Garrison learned that Ferry had definitely known Lee Harvey Oswald. And as the DA prepared to arrest Ferry again, oh, he died. Despite two typed suicide notes at his bedside, the death was ruled to be of natural causes. Guy Bannister, that private eye, had died in 1964. He had had an office adjacent to the one that Oswald had occupied while doing his so-called pro-Fidel Castro activism. Bannister would have been a good person to question, and it turned out the FBI had gotten him on the phone to make such queries. In fact, the day after Oswald himself was murdered, the FBI had Bannister on the phone to ask about that very office. Now, Oswald's occupancy was the obvious reason for the call, but his name never comes up in the transcript. I love that. Bannister told the Bureau that that space had recently been rented by Sergio Arcacha. Arcacha headed an anti-Castro organization. Oh, and by the way, wouldn't you know it, that group also received funding from, are you ready? Yeah, the CIA. Team Wiener, you know anything about this? A CIA-funded anti-Castro group occupying the same office space as pro-Castro Lee Oswald? God, that, that is a coincidence. Garrison's operations got compromised by volunteers who showed up to help him. Such help invariably steered the investigations up blind alleys. And some came from, I hate to say it, but, well, yeah, turns out the same anti-Castro groups that were funded by, well, you know who. The man Garrison tried, Clay Shaw, had assisted Oswald's murky activities around New Orleans. There were oddities aplenty in the case of Clay Shaw, While Oswald was in custody post-assassination, Shaw phoned a lawyer who had represented Lee in a minor matter, asking him if he'd consider providing the accused legal help. That raises questions that to this day remain unanswered. Still, Shaw was probably not central to any plot to kill the president. He was found not guilty, and Garrison's entire effort was ridiculed. Wiener acts as though the whole thing was a farce. But Garrison had shown that Oswald was being steered and manipulated by forces that were shades of KGB propagandists from America's intelligence agencies. And when Stone made JFK in 1991, Garrison's ideas were revived. Garrison felt, and evidence would later support, that Oswald was no genuine communist, but rather a man who defected to the USSR on assignment. His treatment by the CIA upon return to the U.S. was unique. 
At the height of the Cold War, when U.S. intelligence was desperate for hard data about the USSR, we have a man who'd lived there for two years and married a Russian, yet when he returns stateside, he gets completely and totally ignored, or so the CIA claimed to the Warren Commission. Oswald's activities in New Orleans indicate he was being directed by intelligence-related figures. It is not paranoia to claim that said figures had links to the CIA. It's not disinformatia. People like Ferry, Bannister, Shaw, and Arcacha did have such links. And for more information on all that, we suggest you read James Diogenio's Destiny Betrayed. Journalist Jefferson Morley and former Army Intelligence Officer John Newman would later show that Oswald's handling by the CIA and the Office of Naval Intelligence reveals that he had to have been a low-level intelligence agent. And Lee Oswald was of great interest to an agency that would later falsely claim it had no knowledge of him in the months before the assassination. Tim Weiner rules out the possibility that any elements of the CIA had anything to do with the assassination. I don't know if he's read that 1967 CIA memo, but he does toe the mark when it comes to its suggested method of operation, i.e., the conspiracy theorists will always choose to believe what they like, and they can be discounted. Yet, in Rolling Stone, Wiener admits that the possibility exists that it was the Soviets, maybe the Cubans, or maybe the mob. Just lay off the CIA, because that's foolish. I say that the two groups we can be positive did not have an involvement in the JFK assassination are A, the Russians, and B, the Cubans. The USSR was not going to start World War III. Luckily, it would turn out neither would the Johnson administration. Lee Oswald made that trip to Mexico City in late September 1963. Though he was physically present in Mexico, he was also impersonated while down there. He was impersonated while doing some pretty outrageous and suspicious things, which which is pretty significant. At least J. Edgar Hoover thought so anyway. Our spies at the CIA normally photograph those who came and went to both embassies. But darn it, they had to report with regret that their cameras failed when Oswald was nosing around both. Anyone inclined to accept Wiener's view of no CIA fingerprints in the case should be advised. But while the accused was still alive and in police custody in Dallas, the FBI listened to those Mexico City tapes of a phone call to the Russian embassy made by a man who claimed to be Lee Oswald, and they'd been recorded and retained by the CIA. FBI agents reported to Hoover that the man on the tape was, quote, not identical, unquote, to the man in custody. This led the CIA director to complain to the new president that they were getting jerked around. They knew at that point that someone had been impersonating Oswald and that they were not getting a straight story about it from the CIA. Now, Oswald in Mexico is a convoluted story. It still harbors mysteries. When the House Select Committee on Assassinations launched a special investigation of that incident, the study got classified. Now, much of it has since been released, but the fact that it was hidden and all, and and still not fully available, should raise some eyebrows. Later, the Assassination Records Review Board, the ARRB, created in the wake of Stone's 1991 film, was supposed to unseal all records pertaining to the case that did not compromise national security. And the JFK Revisited documentary cites numerous revelations that came from those releases. A final release was supposed to take place by law in 2017. President Donald Trump kicked this down the road till 2021. Apparently the CIA had complained. Joe Biden listened to further CIA whinging 
and kicked the can to December of 2022. Now, if the CIA had no significant role in November 22nd, 1963, why is this happening? Journalist Jeff Morley took the agency to court to obtain some of those records related to suspicious actors in the saga, and the courts denied him. We do note, Tim Weiner apparently has never sued the agency. We're glad to see he has a good working relationship with them. When Oswald was in New Orleans, scuffering with anti-Castro Cubans getting arrested, his adversaries later put him on a radio program to explain his Marxist views. And that group was funded by, well, you can guess, can't you? After the assassination, they put out a phonograph record with, with recordings of that radio interview claiming that Oswald worked for Castro. It's kind of a remarkable coincidence that the CIA-funded anti-Castro group in Miami also tried to link Oswald to Castro the very day after the assassination. And since we're on the anti-Castro-Cuban topic, in yet another remarkable coincidence, the man who ran that Miami group for our friends at the CIA got called out of retirement to act as a liaison to the House Select Committee on Assassinations, which was trying to investigate Oswald's links to, among other things, anti-Castro groups. The man stonewalled the efforts, which is really kind of too bad because the HSCA really could have used that data. Turns out our man was later given high honors by the agency. Don't ask for what, however. That remains classified. Suffice it to say as we wrap up that Lee Oswald still has unrevealed links to U.S. intelligence. He was surely a low-level agent on assignment when he, quote, defected, unquote. He was surely being steered by those above him on return to the U.S., including his New Orleans activities. The company he kept upon return to the U.S. warrants tracing out through whatever files still exist on those people. It is 2022 for God's sake. Let's have a look at those files. Now, Jim Garrison made mistakes. He made many. But he did find evidence that has remained obscured to this day. Things such as the fact that when Oswald was leafleting pro-Castro materials in New Orleans, while based in an office adjacent to an anti-Castro private dick, in an office that had previously been rented by an anti-Castro group, witnesses who saw the arrest thought that it was staged. Oswald's passing out leaflets, anti-Castro Cubans he'd interacted with previously showed up, there's a scuffle, they all get arrested. The whole melee got captured by a, no- a local news crew who arrived just in time. And I have to add <laughs> that Jim Diogenio once joked, you know, call up your local news station to inform you you're going to be doing some leafleting. See if they'll send out a camera crew. Garrison thought it was odd that after his arrest, Oswald requested that an FBI agent come to speak with him. And one did. And that is odd, is it not? Oliver Stone found Garrison's investigation worthy of examination, and he made a great film about it. What has emerged in the documents released by the ARRB as a consequence is sometimes dull, but much of it raises intriguing questions. Investigators want to learn, for example, more about the CAA officer who was tasked with assassinations in the early 60s. His name was William Harvey. Bill Harvey hated the Kennedys, and he hated them more when they transferred him out of Washington after he was insubordinate to them. Harvey was posted to Rome, but a credible eyewitness has him on a flight to Dallas just before the assassination. Now, that witness could be wrong, and the explanation for it could be quite innocent. But official results of his movements at this time remain locked up. If there was an innocent explanation, don't you imagine the agency would want it out? The fact is that Jim Garrison, and by extension Oliver Stone, stumbled onto avenues of investigation that raised questions about Oswald's relationship to the CIA. And Garrison and Stone are hardly alone. 
Jeff Morley and John Newman, as mentioned, have probed the angle of CIA manipulations, and they've done so with a depth that has not allowed Tim Weiner to wave it all away with a couple of sentences claiming the whole thing is disinformatia. Oliver Stone has answered Weiner's attacks by pointing out that an Italian communist newspaper did not play a big role in his putting together his movie. There was no shortage of materials that were relevant, and here we've touched on just a few. But there's one small example that I think maybe provides a nice way to close this rant. We would note that in the official version of events, Lee Oswald kills the president from a sixth-floor window. He stashes his rifle on the opposite corner of an open warehouse, then takes the stairs down four flights to the second floor. He then crosses over to an employee break room, where he gets soon accosted by a Dallas motorcycle policeman. For his part, the cop had seen pigeons fly off the roof of the Texas Book Depository when the shots rang out. Officer Marion Baker parks his bike, and he ran inside, pistol in hand. On his way in, he was joined by the building supervisor, and he soon found his way to the break room on the second floor. Baker spotted motion inside, and he stepped in to accost Oswald with a pistol aimed at his belly. Baker asked the supervisor if he knew the man, advised that Oswald was an employee. Both men flew up the stairway in search of a culprit. In Officer Marion Baker's handwritten report, he mentions the man confronted was at the far end of the break room, and in the report, he wrote that Oswald was, quote, drinking a Coke, unquote. Baker recreated his actions for the Warren Commission to determine the time elapsed from hearing the shots to confronting Oswald. It took 75 seconds, or maybe 90. He did it twice. Now, obviously, Lee Oswald was extremely hard-pressed to have done what is described after assassinating a president. I mean, the data suggests he visited the vending machine to snag a Coke, and we haven't factored in the uncapping of the bottle and commencing to drink. It's all pretty hard to fit into this tiny time interval. So what do you know? When they typed up a version of this report, the drinking a Coke part disappeared. And upon closer examination, so did lots of other pieces of information in this case. Early investigators were astounded by what they found in this regard the moment they started looking. Suffice it to say, there was and is cause for suspicion. Oliver Stone's movie in 1991 got the government to release many files for which he deserves a great deal of credit. Much of these materials raise as many questions as they answer, however. And there are many more the public deserves to see. How can it be, just for example, that the young, impoverished Marine, just back from an unusual defection to the USSR, should have his 1962 income tracks excluded from release? Yes, for some reason they are specifically omitted from the records legislation. You, you do have to ask why. I suggest you watch the documentary, JFK Revisited, and if you have some time, go back and watch the 1991 film, JFK. You can then appreciate what added information we now have on account of that film. And you should check out the website run by the documentary's writer, James Diogenio, kennedysandking.com. For our part, we will try to bring Jim on in the weeks to come to both support his efforts and learn more. It turns out that there is a four-hour version of this documentary that is slated to come out in February. We'd like to get a preview. We need to know more, and we need more data declassified according to the law that was set up to do exactly that. All right, I talked myself silly on this. There is another documentary we don't have time to talk about. It is JFK Unsolved. That's another one you need to check out, dear listener. We will 
believe you may have more to say about it in the future. It wraps around author Josiah Thompson's sequel to his classic Six Seconds in Dallas back in 1967. Last year, he produced Last Second in Dallas. The documentary JFK Unsolved is about that and his half-century of effort. He, too, has agreed to come on this program and discuss his remarkable book, and we're looking forward to that. We'll be back next week with a more regular program. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and this program was produced by Edward McMillan.